0: Thanks team. that's great. Our reading tonight is from John, uh, chapter 18, verses 28 to 40, and then continuing on into chapter 19 verses 1 to 16. It's titled "Jesus Before Pilate." Then the Jesus, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And on into chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover, And it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Jeff is going to come now and... uh, Just talk us through that. We look forward to that, Jess. (laughs) I'm just going to pray for you now. Father, we just thank you for this reminder of uh, the things that happened to Jesus before his trial and the various elements we see there in the people around him and their attitudes towards him. Lord, we ask that as we just hear your word tonight, that you will speak to us through it, that we will gain new understanding from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good on you.
1: This uh, passage uh, I find extraordinary. Uh, You can see that as we're working through, John, we're a little bit out of sync with the liturgical calendar, but... Uh, nonetheless, I like to preach on this passage outside of uh, Good Friday and Easter um, uh, because it's so dark and uh, it, it really focuses on another. I have a very friendly mosquito here. Um, and uh, <laughs> that was that. <laughs> um, But uh, as we look at this passage, I've just got to ask myself the question, it just strikes me that John, this writer, he's got limited parchment and he's got a lot of very important things to say and yet he spends, this was a long reading and we haven't got the end of it, he spends the best part of a chapter really focusing on this rather dark character of Pilate and I've got to wonder, why is he doing that? Uh, and we'll try and wrestle with that question in the back of our mind. But as you look at this passage, you might notice that the structure is, is quite extraordinary. It's a movement from two scenes all the time, from moving inside, then outside, then outside, then inside and outside. And, and the, what happens in those two planes is quite distinct. Um, <clears throat> outside is the, the parade, the official story. Inside is a place of deliberation and truth and moral um, reflection. And that's the nature of this story and, J- and John is playing with that. As you would have noticed as it was read, uh, this is a passage that's full of what you'd call epochal statements. That is, sledgehammer statements that rattle on down through history. And even secular people quote these things that fall off the, the lips of either pilot Jesus and so this is a very powerful passage and there's a lot of forces at work here that uh, we've got to unpack to really understand what is happening and and we mustn't misunderstand it the historical background is that Pilate has a reputation when this incident happens he's almost halfway through the 10 year stint as procurator of this uh, troublesome outer kingdom of the Roman Empire and he has a reputation already for being quite a, a rotter. Uh, he, he doesn't mind spending blood. He has no empathy for the people that he rules. In fact, he holds the Jewish leaders in absolute contempt. And uh, that's, uh, that's the nature of this fellow. He's quite a beast. Don't have, uh, for a moment, have any, uh, any misgivings about that uh, evaluation. This fellow... If he is a leadership style, it would be Machiavellian mixed with uh, unpredictability. Makes him a particularly dangerous uh, cretin. And that's the nature of this fellow. And then what has immediately happened is that the night before, Jesus has been arrested with Roman help and taken to the courtyard of two of the priests, a high priest and his uncle, the former high priest. And they are seeking to convict this guy. They've got to get him to uh, either by evidence, by other witnesses, and they can't do that, they struggle, until Jesus trips the switch by claiming he is the Son of Man, that he will come on the clouds. And they're going to see him again in another context. And that's enough. And they have a blasphemous charge. He has claimed to be the Son of Man Claim to be the divine man of heaven. And so after that kangaroo court is over, they realize that they want to crucify this, they want to kill this person, but they they don't have the authority to do that. The Jews did not have the right to carry out capital punishment. Only the Romans can do that. And that's why they, they rush off early the next morning because the Roman court was closed by noon and they've got to grab the procurator and they've got to get that uh, decision out of him very quickly and efficiently. And so they come to him in verse 28 as it was read to us. Jesus is led from the house of the high priest to the governor's headquarters and it's early morning. And it's ironic and irony is a running theme right through this passage. Here's the first ironic irony. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Well, isn't that lovely? In fact, some of these people were not only going to eat the Passover, they're going to offer the Passover. And you see the problem that if they entered the procurator's quarters, it's Gentile territory. If they touch anything, they they believe in a contamination theory. That's kosher. They they become unclean and they won't be able to be cleansed for another day at least. So They're not going to be able to offer the Passover. And and so the feast uh, would not cover the Jews with the blood of the lamb. You see the incredible irony? that here is the Lamb of God in front of them and his blood would cover the nation, but uh, out of propriety they decide to keep outside and Pilate has to come out to them. And he sees what would have been an incredible scene. There is at least the 70 of the Sanhedrin, the Senate of God's people, the high quality, the, the best people, the educated, the lawyers, the theologians, the rulers, the people who can trace their lineage right back through history of Jerusalem and Israel and Judea, and these people matter. And so that's an intimidating scene for a procurator to see early in the morning. These people mean business. Pilate comes out and he knows that. He also knows that Jesus only recently was welcomed into the city a hero's welcome, uh, with potentially the capacity to snap his fingers and to to turn this city against Rome, to get rid of the Romans. He has incredible crowd-pulling power. Uh, Pilate—he hears the gossip. He knows the news. He also knows, as I said a couple of weeks ago, that Jerusalem now has swelled potentially and the outskirts to 3 million people and he has in his garrison 760 soldiers. Do the maths. He has about another 250 cavalry down the road but he really doesn't want to upset these people and he doesn't want to upset the people that follow Jesus and so he's treading delicately. He's very shrewd in this whole interchange. And he comes out to them and he asks, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they simply replied, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. you know, basically, they want him to sign a blank check. Hand him... We've, what do you think we're doing here? We've already tried him, we've come to our verdict, but he's guilty of a crime worthy of death and so are we are handing over to you. Pilate says taking yourselves, judging by your own law. See, he, he doesn't want to be accused of killing one who has potentially a following that could erupt in his face. So he says, do your own dirty business, taking yourself. And we read that they say, but we haven't got any right to execute anyone. They didn't. So they object. But you see, here's another irony, that the very fact that they don't have the authority to carry out capital punishment only fulfills the fact that Jesus has prophesied as the prophets before him prophesied that if I be lifted up from the earth crucified I'll draw all men to myself and this was about the kind of death he was going to die he was not going to die by the traditional Jewish method of stoning that wouldn't fulfill the prophecy Isn't it ironic that these people think that they're running the show, Pilate thinks he's in control of the show, but ultimately God will get his way, despite the humans having the freedom to act as agents as they do. So now we shift scenes, and we move inside, and Pilate then went back inside the palace, and he summoned Jesus over here. He says to him, let's get this done quickly. You're the king of the Jews, that is, Are you a rebel king, the one I've been hearing about? You think you're a king? And Jesus knows a little bit about the law. After all, he is the just one. And he says, is this your own idea or did others tell you about me? That is, Jesus says, you and I both know that hearsay doesn't constitute evidence. So, have you come to this conclusion or you're basing it on hearsay? Pilate says, I, I'm not a Jew. Look, your own people have bought me too. You must have done something. And he asks Jesus to incriminate himself again outside his remit as a judge. Jesus says, my kingdom, here's the first classic statement, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not worldly. Doesn't work like the world works. If it was, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. So Jesus uses this fact that he's seemingly in Pilate's grip to prove that he's really a different, qualitatively different sort of king and a different sort of kingdom. But my kingdom is from another place. Ah, so here's the word. Pilate's not really listening. He's just looking for data. So here's the word king. You're a king then, says Pilate. That's all I needed to know. Let's, we've got that established. Let's move on. And Jesus said, well, that's, that's your way of talking. It's not my way. In fact, the reason why I was born was to come into the world to testify to the truth, claiming his pre-existence. And everyone who's on the side of truth, and every judge should be on the side of truth, listens to me. So Jesus is saying, you know, my purpose is not revolution, but revelation. And those who are really interested in the truth won't be able to take their eyes off me. They'll listen to me. You know, it's interesting, a few years ago, going back now, I remember having a conversation with a, a young lawyer who had uh, I'd been um, watching his career develop and he has admitted to the bar and at the end of the year he is invited and went along to the Law Institute um, conference. I don't know what they call it, but in Victoria... It so happened that a a particularly famous lawyer uh, from a particularly famous law firm and family uh, had just retired and was giving the uh, keynote address. I couldn't remember that word this morning. The keynote address. And uh, um, and my, my friend was quite disturbed because he thought the law was really about evidence. And here this fellow stood up and he said these sorts of words to the effect. He said, what our role is as lawyers is to present the position of our client in the most favourable possible terms. That is, forget about truth. We are simply in the business of plausibility. Our role is to write a narrative that will make our client appear in the most favourable light. Now that disturbs me. But here, Pilate's response is exactly that. He says, What is truth? He's a modern. In fact, he's a postmodern. This fellow could have read Nietzsche. And he's not interested in truth, as neither was Nietzsche. Neither is the postmodernist. neither is the social constructionist, neither is the anti-foundationalist. You don't press back to truth, even though our, our picture of it might be somewhat hazy. It's, it has no value at all. What's important is power. As Nietzsche said, well, truth is simply the will to power. The person who controls the narrative, they're the powerful. And that's the world we live in, my friends. And I find it astonishing that people are telling the church to go quiet, to get back in their place. But the fundamental reason why they do that is because we, as Francis Schaeffer said 50 years ago, believe in true truth. Not my truth, your truth, but real truth, absolutes. So with this, Pilate goes out to the Jews and basically says... Yeah, I've chatted to this guy, you've bought me a dud. I mean, this fellow is no insurrectionist. He's he's seen poison-spitting, venomous insurrectionists and they don't reinteract interact with the procurator, the enemy, that way, the way Jesus did. I find no basis to charge him, he says, and he wants to release him because he, he just knows that he's got to do the right thing on the books. And then he... An idea pops into his mind. He says, But we have a custom that on the Passover, we have this little goodwill gesture. We could use a wild card and we could use it on this guy and let him go. And that's what you're using. And uh, you know, you get something and we get something. And you know, I keep my hands clean. Let's use the wild card. Do you want me to release the King of the Jews? He says. And that way they'll say face, but they are incensed. And they shout, no, we'll use the wild card, but we want to use it on Barabbas. And the text actually says, now, Barabbas was a robber. And that is a euphemism for an insurrectionist. He, as the NIV says, has been involved in an uprising, but that's not in the text. It just says, Barabbas was a robber. He was an insurrectionist. He probably, on that day, only had 12 hours to live. They cut cut the heads of off these people very quickly, and once they are arrested, that was it. And these people shout, "We'd rather have an insurrectionist, a zealot, someone who can do something useful, a history maker. We don't want this guy. They detest Jesus." And so then Pilate thinks, "Hmm, they're not going to use the wild card. Maybe we'll use the 50/50." So he's not going to kill Jesus and trigger a revolution, just in case. He doesn't want to soil his hands, so he takes Jesus and he has a half measure. He meets them halfway. He has Jesus flogged. Now, a flogging, we know, with a Roman whip with little coins and bits of bone in it, frequently was sufficient to kill the victim. They had a rule that you could only have 40 lashes. But then after that, he hands Jesus like a bone thrown into a cage of dogs. And he gives these tense, pent-up, testosterone-filled Roman soldiers, Jesus, as sport for who knows how many minutes he was there. And they do a mock coronation... They plunge a crown of thorns into his scalp so his mascara runs. They clothe him in a purple robe like a king and then they come up and they dub him again and again and again till his face is like a pumpkin. You know, it's just like the schoolyard. It's like the schoolyard bullies and he's been thrown to them except in this schoolyard there's no teacher on duty, there's no big brother to come to your rescue and the school bell never rings. I'm often amazed that uh, people like the great minds of the last century, the Bertrand Russells, see that the biggest problem with our faith is the issue of theodicy. That is, how can... Theos, God, allow unrighteousness and injustice to happen and still be God? I've never been really troubled by that question, even in my agnostic days. I thought it was a dumb question because I grew up in a Christian family and I read this story because as a primary question we really should ask is not how can God allow evil, but how could the God of heaven watch this evil... And allow us to persist. That's the primary question. Like what would you do if you were the father of that son? In that moment. But that God allows us another day in the sun. That's the tough question. I don't know how he can. But then I'm not God. Aren't we lucky? So then we move outside again. And once more, Pilate comes out and he says to the Jews gathered there, look, and he see, he's going to achieve three things. One, he's relieved the testosterone tension of his troops. Two, he's sort of appeased Jewish sensibilities. He knows they despise Jesus, so he's treated Jesus badly. But three, he thinks now's the time for a little bit of sport, Ike. I can't stomach these Jews and I'm going to rub their impotent noses in it. And he brings out Jesus and he says, look, and he shows them this Jesus robed and crowned. And he says, just so that you know that I find no guilt in this man, I present him to you. Behold the man. That's what he actually says. Feast your eyes on him, the king of the Jews. You see what he's saying? He's saying to them, if you choose Barabbas, if you have any inkling of insurrection, have a look what Rome does to the innocent. Just think what they will do to the guilty. Pause for thought. He's a rotter. And Jesus, the man, from another plane, stands there. And the chief priests, like animals that sense a weak one amongst them, bay for blood. And they yell in unison, these are the best people, the senators, the theologians, the lawyers, the priests, the kings, the princes. And they yell, crucify, crucify. They cannot stomach him. They want this world rid of him. This is level five conflict, folk. No coming back from this. They smell blood and they want blood. That's all that will satisfy. And Pilate says, he's enjoying this, he says, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I can find no charge in him, no guilt in him. Oh, I forgot You can't do capital punishment, can you? You've got a bit of a problem. But I'm not going to do your dirty work for you. You take him and crucify him. At which point the Jews come clean. And they say, we have a law, and according to that law, he should die because he claimed to be God. The real charge, the real reason why they bought him wasn't insurrection. That was trumped up. The real reason is blasphemy. He took the name of God in vain, lightly, loosely. We can't tolerate that. And right at this moment, Pilate, we read, is even more afraid. He's already tense, but now he needs to run back inside and just check the data. He's made a hash of this, and he's just thinking, my goodness. And he says to Jesus, where did he come from? He drags this carcass back in and he starts questioning him again. He says, where do you come from? Because he knows that origin is identity. And maybe he should have asked about that first. That's usually the first thing you clarify in a court. A bit late now. Where do you come from? And Jesus says, he answers him in thunderous silence. He just eyeballs him. And effectively, Jesus is saying, you had your opportunity. You forfeited the truth. That's all you're going to get. As for you, it's game over. Well, Pilate then gets hot on the collar, but see, he's only got one gear, violence. And he tries to convert, confront Jesus and coerce him. You refuse to speak to me, he says. I mean, don't you realize, you know, your life is hanging by a thread, and I hold that thread. It's in your best interest to come clean. Cough up. That's what he's saying. Jesus says, well, actually, Pilate, your power is totally delegated. You're a bit player in someone else's game. In fact, Rome's authority is being given to you by someone above, above Tiberius and Augustus and all the Caesars. And it's amazing at this moment that Jesus has such proportion after a sleepless night and after a thorough thrashing, he is still focused on truth and justice. And so in, unlike Pilate, his perspective is twenty twenty vision. He says, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. He has proportion in his scheme of justice. You know, folks, we just need to realize that the Jesus that we worship needs to be three-dimensional. This Jesus can be incredibly dispassionate in dispensing his justice. He is not so emotionally enmeshed with our cuteness or our potentiality that he will not dispense justice. It's a forgotten doctrine in this age. We like to talk about the love of God. But the Jesus we worship is three-dimensional. He is love through and through, but he's also just through and through, and he's true through and through. And he will not shirk the role of judging the world by his own standards, not by their standards. And he will judge it accurately according to all the evidence. And that's why we don't have a place to hide before God. His love doesn't sugarcoat that process. He's not a sugar daddy. He's the judge of the world. Well, at that point, Pilate is panicked. And he goes back out and he says to these guys, there's got to be a loophole. We've got to find a way out of this. Somehow or other, we've got to do this uh, a different way. And they, the Jews, uh, it takes one mongrel to know another. And they know how he ticks, because that's the way they tick. That's the way they dance. And they see that he's losing his traction. (laughs) And they realise they have the trump card. And they say, <clears throat> because they know that a narcissist only respects one thing, and that is immovable power, the power of Rome. And so they say, you know, this isn't going to look good on your record pilot. You let this king, this rebel king, go free on a Jewish national day. How's that going to sound back in Roman? If, if even a half-baked version of that makes it back to Rome you'll be trading places with Jesus and he knows it in fact at the end of his career he is replaced and it does get back to Rome but not about this anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar and right then Pilate is in a very uncomfortable place he is pinned between two options he's pinned because he has a theology which is sort of like a marvel comic theology <clears throat> he does believe that the legends and the 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 heroes of the other world constantly interact and come into this world and muck it up and this guy could be one from there and he'll have to face them in another day and another play and he'll have to face Jesus but he's also faced with the, the predicament that, that his head is on the line right now. If he does the just thing, he should get, give Jesus his freedom. But you see, that's the nature of eternity and truth. It never shouts as loud as the acceptance of the world and the immediate. And so Pilate, at that point, chooses his immediate predicament <coughs> over his eternal and he brought Jesus out and he set Jesus, Jesus down, probably on the judgment seat at the stone pavement. It, it's an acoustic device, and everyone can hear the verdict that's been passed at this stage. <coughs> it's a day of preparation just before the Sabbath Passover, very holy day. <coughs> and he, he uses his third strategy now. You know, we've, we've seen already the other two, but now he says, well, folks, I think we got off to a bad start. <clears throat> bad footing. Let's just back this up a little bit. Let's rewind the tape. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, just scrub all that. Uh, let's, let's get Hansard right, right now. So, okay, um, now you follow my lead and take this down. This is what gets back to Rome, okay? And uh, so everyone is on tender hooks. And Pilate runs through it again. Now why does he do that? It's because he's got a correct hand Effectively saying to them, let us together socially construct the truth. He's so postmodern. We'll have not your truth, my truth and the truth, but we'll have our truth. Won't that be nice? He's a social constructionist. And he says, here we go again. Here is your king. Okay, so the charge we're going is insurrection, right? Yep, Are you with me? Here is your king, he says. And they he says, and now you say, they say, oh, take him away, take him away, uh, crucify him, good, good. Uh, Shall I crucify your king, he asks. And they say, and this goes down the ages. We have no king but Caesar. The best of the Jews, the theologians, the lawyers, the princes, the people related to King David and all the boys say, we have no king but Caesar. But who was their king? It was Yahweh, who was the one they were in covenant with. And right that minute, John just puts it out there as a little phrase. But these people ripped up the covenant of ages, the old covenant, and they said it counted for nothing. We'll go it alone, is what they're saying with Caesar. Amazing that they sealed their eternal destiny unless there is a loophole. Right that minute, they're in furious agreement. And that's the nature of it, folks, that... Human beings, fundamentally what makes us sinners is that every human being on the planet resists the Holy Spirit. We aren't wonderful. We're evil. We resist the Holy Spirit. We actually detest the reign of God. We'd rather not have him over us. We'd even choose an oppressor before we choose Jesus as Lord. But when we do that, we know we're doing the wrong thing and we are ripped internally. And the story of Western civilization is that people are simply trying to reconstruct themselves internally by their social connections externally. So we have political correctness. We're all in furious agreement and it makes us feel a little warmer in the cold night of our lives. So I ask the question, why does John focus a whole chapter on Pilate? It's a story of a man who is somewhat like us. Sure, we might not be violent, brutal narcissists. But there's something of Pilate in all of us. You see, this man got caught out unprepared. This man thought he was going to have a nice, quiet weekend. But then the moment came which called for courage to stand for the truth. And he was weighed and found wanting. He wasn't made of that stuff. You know, I think the difference between, say, the university culture today and when I was at uni... uni, It used to be just aggression against (laughs) theological things. Today I don't find that, I find the issue is more a more treacherous thing called ambivalence, not aggression. And often I've had people who have left the faith, people in my own family and uh, in the next generation and the generation beyond and who basically say, Jeff, you're a Christian, I don't have your capacity for faith. I, I don't know where the evidence lies. My response to that is that you're lying. The issue isn't with the evidence. Behold the man. Tell me that one is a fake. Behold the man. Ambivalence is that uncomfortable position that Pilate found himself in where he had to choose in a moment and he was unprepared and he had to choose between his eternal destiny and his immediate popularity. And each of us will be there even maybe this week. Folks, you have to resolve that before the day, before the hour, before the challenge. You have to resolve where you will stand. I encourage you to do this little exercise, maybe now, maybe in your own quiet moment. But if you want to be rid of the culture of ambivalence, then I would encourage you to do this little exercise where you close, you read this story and you close your, your eyes and you visualize the face of this Jesus And you have the moral courage to tell him that he has not given you enough evidence for his lordship and his love. Be man about it. Tell him. Don't give me this ambivalence rubbish. Or you tell him and you tell the world, I'm with the man. What you say of him, you say of me. On the way down this morning, it reminded me of something I remember seeing years ago. I used to watch uh, on grand final football grand final uh, morning. They used to have this thing on uh, Channel Seven. Does anyone used to see the the North Melbourne grand final breakfast? Do you remember that it used to be? No. Does it? Does, they still have it? I haven't watched. it. I haven't got get up that early these days. But anyway. And and from about 7am on, they'd have all the coaches and the heroes up on the stage at the North Melbourne Footy Club and they would have these comedians and singers and celebrities. Usually the Prime Minister was there grabbing votes. And and, uh, and this particular North Melbourne breakfast, I remember this one stood out very much in my mind. I can't remember what year it was. And uh, they had this particular comedian and he's really bawdy as a, a you know, club comedian and doing a whole lot of crude jokes and getting a lot of cuffs and, <laughs> you know, it is pretty gross. But that's the sort of company he was keeping. And then he just moved the conversation a little bit and he started talking about the Virgin Mary and her son. And he started knocking the Virgin birth. It was very funny but right in the middle of that the camera sort of started moving and swung off the comedian because in the back of the room was a man dressed as a priest standing on a chair and they honed in on him and the camera boom swung across and you could hear this guy saying to millions of people watching around the world <laughs> you and so You insult me, I'm with the man. That's what he's saying. There is a picture of what every Christian should be. When we're baptised, we're standing with the man. When we say, I'm a member of the Christian union, we're saying, I'm with the man. What you say about him, you say about me. I was also surprised that as that show finished that morning, that embarrassing moment was passed over and they moved on, the show finished and the credits were coming up, the camera panned back in that room. So you could see the whole room and it was astonishing. And it was a little (laughs) diagram that on the stage, sitting on the stage next to his beer was the comedian. No one was around him. Standing in the back corner, in the other corner, was the Catholic priest, surrounded by people, asking about the man. That's the potential. We've sung a lot of songs tonight about standing, about being with. That's the potential of a life that understands There's a little bit of pilot within each of us, but we put to death that ambivalence, knowing that ambivalence is no defence in the court of truth. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for a quiet moment in a week. You who sees all thoughts, who sees all hearts, from whom there are no shadows and your light penetrates every crevice of our consciousness. O God of gods, the Lord of truth, the light himself, we, we have the audacity to speak to you now and to say, O oh God, you know that we are not made of great stuff. But we simply want to say this day in advance of those sorts of hours that we want to stand with you and we want to please you. In fact, we want to make you proud in your world when we identify with you. We know you will be in solidarity with us but Lord... We simply want to say to you this hour: You have our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray, and for His glory. Amen. Thanks for that message, Jeff. Uh, What a
0: powerful.